Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Pull Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast, a series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Liesl Hintz. She's an assistant professor at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and she's the author of a brand new book, Identity Politics Inside Out, National Identity Contestation and Foreign Policy in Turkey. Uh, Liesl, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book. What is the primary contribution of the book? What makes it different from other books about foreign policy in Turkey? So I think the book has two primary contributions. One is sort of theoretical overall, and then one, I hope, is an empirical contribution on studies of Turkey. In terms of the theoretical contribution, um, I wanted to rethink the relationship between identity politics and foreign policy. Um, there's a lot of work that is kind of thinking of foreign policy as a product of identity politics. Oh, it's a Western nation, so it does this. It's in a Muslim nation, so it does this. Or it sees foreign policy kind of as a, um, a cause of identity politics. So um, a country joins NATO or it joins the EU, and therefore its identity politics shifts in certain ways. It has to make certain concessions. It becomes westernized. Exactly, right. So it takes on the, the characteristics of the institution that it joins or the alliance that it participates in. And rather than thinking of foreign policy as either a pure cause or consequence of identity politics, I wanted to rethink it as an arena in which those struggles over identity take place. So how can we understand foreign policy as an alternative playing field for these struggles over what does it mean to be American, what does it mean to be Turkish, and so forth? How can actors circumvent obstacles that they might find domestically back home and use foreign policy tools such as institutional accession criteria or normative pressure from international NGOs or big actors or diaspora groups, resources? How can they use those kinds of tools to then put pressure back on the domestic arena and kind of advance their position? So that's the sort of theoretical contribution. So, so it's, give me one good example sure. uh, from, from the book mm -hmm. to really like illustrate what you have in mind about how this game works. Sure. So one of the main examples that I use in the book is the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, um, which is a party that comes to power in 2002. It comes from actually one of the most anti-Western traditions of political Islam in the country. But as soon as it comes into power, it portrays itself as a big tent party. It seems to explicitly kind of renounce its previous Islamist ties. It says it's very pro-EU. So these are kind of surprising policy directions. And for a couple of years, it seems as though the AKP is going full speed ahead with trying to move Turkey's accession process forward with the EU. What we find, or what I find in the book, is that actually the AKP is using the foreign policy process. It's using the EU conditionality that is the Copenhagen criteria for accession to try to reduce some of its domestic obstacles. So I said that the AKP comes from this you know, anti-Western uh, tradition of political Islam. It's the nationalist outlook movement, or the, mm -hmm. the national outlook movement, the Miligurush Harkiti. And parties in that tradition had faced a number of obstacles in their quest to kind of try and contribute to, to Turkish politics and political debate. Um, a number of parties in that tradition were closed down one after another. They would reopen under a new name, but basically same leadership structure, same ideology, same policy platforms for both, both domestic and foreign policy. So we see that who's closing these parties down? It's the constitutional court. It's the judicial system that is you know, kind of using its power to 
block those kinds of parties from gaining any power for themselves. We also see the military, which traditionally was really a repository of what I call Republican nationalist understandings of identity. That is a sort of Western-oriented, secularist, modern, state-led development, sort of an understanding of, of what it means to be Turkish. And so as we see the military, it's again this sort of defender of Ataturk's principles, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the Republic. And so the military, as this repository of these Kemalist ideals, or what I call Republican nationalist uh, understandings of Turkish national identity, has actually kicked out uh, a party from power. That was the welfare party in the mid-90s. And so you see both the military and the judicial system as these domestic obstacles to the AKP's tra trajectory. So basically, I look at the way in which EU policies are used to defend reconfiguring civil-military relations, mm -hmm. judicial reform, and so forth. So all of these moves that ostensibly are taken in pursuit of EU membership actually serve to weaken domestic obstacles to the AKP's project. And once you see those obstacles weaken, you see the AKP shift from its EU trajectory. That's great, and it totally flips on the head many popular understandings of what was going on in that period. I mean, a lot of us, I think, are, are looking back and wondering, should we have known that this was the AKP's strategy? Should we have been a little bit more circumspect? In fact, in Turkey, there's sort of a competition over who knew it first, and, oh, I never believed the AKP was actually interested in contributing to you know, human rights reform and so forth, uh, it was really out to serve its own interests. So there's there's a bit of a, a contention yeah. in the Turkish politics field over that. So, you know, before we get into some of the other examples and cases you use, let's talk a little bit about the methodology. Very innovative, and it really, it is, it's fascinating the way you try and identify mm -hmm. these identities. Right. So tell, tell us a little bit about what you do and what makes it different from the way other people have gone about studying these, these identity politics. So I think this is an important question, particularly in the Turkish case, although the methodology I use, um, explicitly I use because it's rec replicable, you can use it in other cases and for case comparison. But in the Turkish case, you already have a lot of existing studies and excellent studies who use terms like Muslim nationalism, um, Jenny White's excellent uh, anthropological work, sort of other ways of naming these identities. And what I wanted to do was, rather than take those as givens, kind of start agnostically and from an organic kind of bottom-up way of thinking about where did these identities lie. So what I did was I used a framework to kind of get at the stuff of identity because it's very, you know, intangible and subjective and nebulous and so forth. So I borrow uh, an identity framework from Abdullah et al's Measuring Identity 2009 edited volume, which breaks identity down into a number of components. And then I start looking for attitudes on those components. So constitutive norms. What does it mean to be a member of this identity? Who am I and how am I supposed to behave? So I would, you know, look at, obviously, uh, archival work, I would use journal articles, I would use newspaper articles, but I also did a lot of interviews, surveys, and I used a lot of pop culture to do so. So I'm asking questions like, you know, what are the most important components of being Turkish? Uh, I used a university survey where I asked students, who do you think is the most uh, ideal representation of a Turkish citizen in the soap operas you watch mm. and why? And you would get completely polarized definitions. One would say, I think the best Turkish citizen or representation for a Turk is Polat Alemdar, 
who is this really kind of evil Machiavellian masterminding but super nationalist character in Valley of the Wolves, a really popular television series. Others will say Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, you know, going back to Ottoman times. And, and so you have very different understandings of who the ideal Turkish representative person is. So those are the kinds of questions I'm asking, both what does it mean to be Turkish and who should our allies and enemies be? So I do use, you know, sort of more traditional sources like archives and news reports and, and political discussions, but again, also these surveys of university students, uh, a lot of interviews, and then this use of pop culture, I think, is, is really important for me because I think it provides an extraordinary empirical window onto debates about something as contested and sensitive as identity that particularly foreign researchers don't necessarily have access to. Now, I spent a lot of time in Turkey, and I was fortunate to make a lot of fantastic contacts, and those contacts helped me make other contacts. But I'm also you know, aware of the fact that I'm not necessarily going to get at all the debates that I want to. So using novels and using films and looking at how the characters kind of discuss these debates that are written for Turkish audiences actually helps you get at some of those uh, pictures that you wouldn't necessarily get at otherwise. So let's then take that up to some of these like really Im important contemporary mm -hmm. kinds of, uh, of issues with Turkish foreign mm -hmm. policy um, and kind of see how your book you know deals with it or mm -hmm. the theory applies. So take something like uh, policy towards Syria. Um, and how it's changed over the Absolutely. years. So how, how does your theoretical approach help us to understand Turkish policy in Syria? Sure. It's actually a bit of a convoluted process. Um, you see a lot of flip-flops on foreign policy that I do think my approach can help explain. So the understanding of Turkish national identity that I say that the Ottoman, or that I say that the AKP has is something called Ottoman Islamism. Um, what it means to be a Turk is that you are a pious Sunni Muslim, you respect patriarchal authority, um, and you sort of see Turkey's role in foreign policy as legitimated by its former home as the Sultanate and the Caliphate. So this is rife in pop culture. We have what we sort of call automania in Turkey. There's soap operas and everything from ads for real estate to chewing gum. You have people in these, you know, dressed as uh, sort of cheap sultan-like costumes. Um, and in fact, even uh, candidates for the AKP's election in 2014 wore sort of sultanic garb, which a lot of people made fun of. But if you think about candidates trying to appeal to an audience, that means there's a demand for that kind of, of symbolic recognition. So this Ottoman Islamist understanding of Turkish national identity had obviously domestic con consequences, increase of the role of Islam in the public sphere, things like this. But in terms of foreign policy, it meant that Turkey should take a much more active role in its region, in the Balkans, in the Caucasus, and particularly in the Middle East. And this sort of found um, its intellectual foundations in Ahmed Davutoglu's understanding of strategic depth. And this was, you know, Turkey, because it has been so focused on being led by individuals who are Western-looking, who deride any sort of association with the Middle East, who look at the Middle East as backward and want to forget that past, sever all ties, that Turkey's missed out on all the potential collaboration and influence it could have had with those particularly Middle Eastern neighbors. So Syria is an excellent example of this. Um, what you saw uh, before Erdogan comes to power, and even before Bashar al-Assad comes to power, is two countries that are almost at the brink of war with each other. Turkey and Syria had disputes over water politics. They were Cold War enemies. 
Um, there was the issue of the PKK. Uh, so Syria would play the Kurdish card occasionally and allow the PKK to train in the Beka Valley, uh, provide supplies and so forth. So they were really sort of at, at uh, almost uh, the point of war. Um, and also the fact that Syria was harboring Abdullah Öcalan, who was the leader of the PKK. So that's 1998. By the early 2000s, you have two new leaders. You have Bashar al-Assad and you have Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And they become sort of best buddies. And they're vacationing in Bodrum together. And they have this really wonderful rapport. And they see each other as sort of dynamic leaders of, of their country. And But the way Erdogan sees it is not necessarily as equals, but rather that Turkey should be the regional influence. Turkey should be the leader. Turkey as the Sunni Muslim leader in the region, and Syria having a Sunni uh, Muslim majority, but being led by an Alawite government, that Turkey should sort of be the one who sets the rules in, in the, the region. So this becomes a problem during the Arab Spring. It becomes a problem when Turkey tries to broker Syria-Israel negotiations, and that falls apart because uh, Israel, from Turkey's perspective, stabs Turkey in the back because right after negotiations in Ankara, they start bombing Gaza. But in terms of Syria specifically, Erdogan believes he has a lot of sway over Assad. And so when the Arab Spring happens, Erdogan sort of becomes the, the what he sees as the voice of region, voice of reason in the region. And he says to the international community, let me take care of this. I have influence, Turkey has power, we've established a rapport. But then Assad never capitulates. He never listens to Erdogan from Erdogan's perspective. He continues to crack down on his population. He refuses to reform. He refuses to step down. So Erdogan had a very misguided and I think overly sort of activist, overly optimistic impression of how much influence he can have in Syria. And the reason that I say the flip-flops are important is that when you don't respect that authority or influence or what Erdogan perceives as Turkey's leading role in the region, you become enemy number one. And that's what happens with Bashar al-Assad. You go from best friends to Assad has to go, and he's a dictator, and I will do anything to see that happen. And then you mentioned the, the PKK and the mm -hmm. Kurdish issue there, and clearly that ends up influencing a lot of, uh, so. of Turkey's attitudes towards Syria, yep. towards Iraq. Iran, and, but absolutely. also in keeping with the theme of your book, mm -hmm. then rebounding back into domestic politics yes. in all kinds of fascinating ways. Yeah. So what's interesting about the Kurdish issue, and I have a separate paper on this, um, is that under previous administrations that held this Republican nationalist understanding of identity, I said that that was Western and, and modern and, and secularist. It was also what can be called either non-ethnic or anti-ethnic. Republican nationalists had uh, an understanding of Turkish national identity that is linguistically and territorially bounded. They had an experience, Atatürk and his cadre had the experience of the Balkan Wars of the First World War, where they saw ethnic nationalism as one of the biggest threats. It's pernicious. It can rend a country apart. And so for them, building the Turkey that they did when the Republic is established in 1923, you could have no references to ethnic nationalism other than this linguistic territorial Turkishness, which everyone could become if they just admitted and said mm -hmm. that they are happy to be a Turk. So you have this major conflict between Kurds and the Turkish state, um, the official war beginning with the PKK in 1984. And there were no real possibilities for outreach to the Kurds because it was a red line, something I call identity red lines in the book, something that is just unthinkable to cross because that's not who we are. We don't recognize this ethnic identity.
when the AKP comes into power with this Ottoman Islamist understanding, as I said earlier, the constitutive norms are being a Sunni Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're Kurdish or you're Laws or you're Circassian or you're Arab. It, what really matters is your religious identity. So from my sort of conceptual perspective, that red line disappears and the possibility opens up that the AKP can make outreaches to the Kurds. And it does several times, sort of half-hearted, not necessarily well thought out. But in 2012, 2013, you have this solution process that's begun. And for the first time, you have these very direct negotiations with the PKK. Again, unthinkable previous to this. But there is a desire by the AKP not just to solve the Kurdish issue, but actually to get Kurds to support their identity project and for Erdogan specifically to support his presidential project. For a while, the Kurds were on board and you had these negotiations and again, unprecedented concessions made. Once it became clear that Kurds were no longer willing to support the presidential project, and this has to do with feeling betrayed in Kobani and feeling as though the AKP is not doing enough against ISIS, which had carried out a number of attacks against Kurds, bombings against Kurds. The Kurds, uh, led by Selahattin Demirtas, uh, who, who just says, we're not going to make you president, we're done with this, we're, we're not supporting you anymore. Very quickly, within a matter of months, that breaks down, and the AKP is again leading a war against the Kurds, which conveniently helps it to rally nationalist support for an election to kind of make up support that it had lost previously. So let's bring this up, I think probably past the book, but kind of where we are now. It seems like uh, Turkish politics have really been um, uh, upended since the uh, since the failed coup and with, uh, you know, the, what at least uh, for from the outside looks like a really sharp turn into autocracy. And, and uh, it seems like a very different type of Turkey than yeah. it was two years ago. How, or three years ago. So how would the, the, the theoretical approach in your book help us to make sense of what's happening in Turkey now and what Turkey is becoming? Is this still the same Turkey or is there a new identity project which is something fundamentally different? So it actually is the same Turkey, although this may get a bit confusing, but Erdogan calls it new Turkey. So this is his project is a new Turkey and he's essentially thinking of it as a second republic. He would like to overturn what Mustafa Kemal Atatürk did. He wants to create a new society. He wants to create a new foreign policy role for Turkey. And this is his new Turkey. But this is what the Ottoman Islamist project has been about all along. The way in which my theoretical framework approaches it is that you use the foreign policy arena to reduce your domestic obstacles, which then opens up the space for you to disseminate that understanding of identity at the domestic level and enact it in your foreign policies. So once the military can no longer say, we don't want any forays in the Middle East or we won't allow headscarves in the university, those kinds of things, and once you know you won't get uh, shut down by a constitutional court, you have the opportunity to do so. What the coup attempt, I think, did was provide another opportunity for Erdogan to reduce any sort of lingering opposition to that project. It should be very clear that Ottoman Islamism is not uncontested in Turkey. This is extraordinarily controversial. There are those who find it, uh, again, there's red lines. We do not want to see uh, our children wearing headscarves. We do not want to see Turkey's foreign policy mired in the Middle East. What's actually interesting um, about this from, from the book's perspective is that the cover photograph is one that I took uh, on the eve of the one-year one anniversary of the coup attempt. So it's July 15th. 
in 2017, and I'm in Ankara, and I'm standing on the steps of the parliament, um, which again was seen as kind of this, you know, new modern Republican way of, of governing. Um, and on the steps of the parliament, uh, I'm looking at the streets that are intersecting it, and it's Ataturk Boulevard, and it's Ismet Inonu Jadisi, Ismet Inonu Street. And I'm looking around me, and I'm seeing all the women in hijab, and I'm seeing, I'm listening to people scream Allahu Akbar, and I'm thinking that is not what those two leaders wanted. This is not their vision for the country at all. They would have been very disappointed. And they tried to put institutions in place that would prevent this from happening. What the coup attempt did was, again, open up the doors, and Erdogan even refers to it as a gift from God, that it allows him to purge uh, those who he saw as threatening. Um, it allows it allows him to purge people who supported the Kurds, who defended them, because they've now become an enemy once again. Um, it allows him to purge members of the Gulen movement or suspected those suspected of being involved in the Gulen movement, which, from an identity perspective, you have the Gulenists who support what I call Turkish Calvinism. It's sort of a, a pan-Turkic religious understanding of, of Turkish identity as opposed to an Ottoman religious understanding of Turkish identity. These two groups, Erdogan's followers and Fethullah Gülen's followers, were partners, sort of pushing against the secularist establishment for a long time. But once again, once Gülen starts challenging Erdogan, he also becomes enemy number one. And then these sort of artificial identity divides crop up against them. And he's, of course, blamed for the coup attempt. So the coup attempt is seen as a way of instituting a state of emergency which again allows you to take even sort of more drastic steps towards institutionalizing this version of identity to the point where the entire system of education for the military has been reconfigured and that Erdogan and his supporters, his people, now control the curriculum that is being taught. So again, it's a way of creating opportunities for continually reducing those domestic obstacles and inserting and institutionalizing your own version of identity. Great. So we've been speaking with Liesl Hentz. Uh, she's the author of a new book, uh, Inside Identity Politics Inside Out, National Identity Contestation and Foreign Policy in Turkey. Uh, Liesl, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. This has been great.